Limited Government and Civil Disobedience in the Western Legal Tradition, a paper presented by Professor Augusta Zimmerman in the city of Mandurah in Western Australia on the 14th of November, 2021. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of men. Caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law, and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. The idea that laws must protect the basic rights of the individual was first advocated by medieval scholars, then reshaped by the likes of John Locke and Thomas Jefferson, and then evoked in the 1960s in the struggle for civil rights in the United States. Although it is true, the ruling classes now completely ignore this important tradition of legality. Saint Augustine of Hippo was one of the world's greatest theologians. He believed in the existence of objective standards which make an unjust law not seen to be law at all. When the state commands what is wrong, he argued, the basic distinction between a government and a gang of criminals disappears. As the saint himself put it in the city of God, justice being taken away, then what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? In the 13th century, the century of Magna Carta, Henry de Bracton, an influential royal judge, defined jurisprudence as the science of the just and unjust, and the enforcement of laws as a just sanction, ordering virtue and prohibiting its opposite. This would lead Bracton to conclude that the king must invariably be under God and the law, because the law makes him king. For there is no king where we rules rather than the law, he said. As stated by Owen Hood Phillips in his book Constitutional and Administrative Law, such superior law governed kings as well as subjects and set limits to the prerogative. On that ground, in the middle of the 15th century, he based his argument Fortescue that there could be no taxation without the consent of the people. Sir John Fortescue was a chief justice of the King's Bench during the reign of Henry VI. He was highly recommended for his wisdom and uprightness. Fortescue believed that freedom was instilled in the human heart by God himself. He goes on to explain how kings have been called by God to govern for the sake of the people, not the other way around. Fortescue remarked, and I quote, a law is necessarily judged cruel if it increases servitude and diminishes freedom, for which human nature always craves. For servitude was introduced by men for vicious purposes, but freedom was instilled into human nature by God. Hence, freedom taken away from men always desires to return, as is always the case when natural liberty is denied. So he who does not favor liberty is to be deemed impious and cruel. Sir William Blackstone was another important advocate of inalienable rights and freedoms, according to this natural law perspective. Blackstone's book, Commentaries on the Laws of England, arrived with the First Fleet in 1788 and has had a significant impact in Australia on the development of our legal system. 
It remains a seminal source regarding the classical views of the common law as a legal system. To avoid tyranny, Blackstone writes uh, in his uh, commentaries, no laws should be suffered to contradict these natural laws. Nay, if any human law should allow us to enjoin us to commit it, we are bound to transgress that human law, or else we must offend both the natural and the divine. The leading opponents of slavery in the 18th century England based their whole movement on the principles of natural law. William Wilberforce was only 25 years when he first served in Parliament in 1780. Over many years, he repeatedly introduced an anti-slavery trade bill in the House of Commons until his private bill was finally passed just two days before he passed away. A sociology professor, Alvin Smith, points out, largely as a result of his efforts, slavery came to a complete end in all of the British Empire's possessions by 1840, making it the first modern country to outlaw slavery. History teaches us that power is able to corrupt the ruler's character. And Lord Acton added, absolute power corrupts absolutely. A government that disperses power is better than one that gathers power into the hands of a few. Accordingly, the separation of powers into independent branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial, works as a more effective protection against abuse of power. Each branch of government wields specific power and acts as a check and balance against the other branches, so that the concentration of power, which is always inimical of freedom, can be prevented. Charles-Louis de Secunda, Baron de Labrède de Montesquieu, generally referred to simply Montesquieu, was a French, French judge, historian, and political philosopher. He is the principal source of the doctrine of separation of powers, which is implemented in many constitutions throughout the world. To restrain the abuse of power, he argued, it is necessary from the disposition of things that power should be a check to power. According to Montesquieu, there is no liberty if the judiciary be not separated from the legislative and executive. And as he also cautioned, when the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty, because apprehensions may arise lest the same monarch or senate should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner. The American founders based the system of government on Montesquieu's clear and rigid separation of the legislative, executive, judicial branches of government, a concept which endures as fundamental to American constitutionalism. They believed in the inherently corruptibility of human nature and societies. As George Washington stated, and I quote, a just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us for the truth of this position. Thus, Washington concluded, the importance of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing it into different depositories has been evinced. The same premise concerning the necessity to separate the powers of the state was explained by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Paper No. 15. Why has government been instituted at all? He asks rhetorically, because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. 
the infamy of a bad action is to be divided among a number rather than to fall singly upon one person, he, he said. Ultimately, the American founders believed that because humans are inherently sinful, it is dangerous to concentrate too much political power in the hands of a few. They aimed at designing a model of constitutional framework that more rigidly would separate the powers and create a variety of mechanisms whereby each branch of government would check the others. To apparently defeat the COVID-19 virus that might be deadly only for those who are very, very old or seriously ill, Australian politicians have acquired extraordinary powers to impose draconian measures that have caused millions of people to endure highly stressful and traumatic situations, including home confinement, job losses, financial ruin, and a whole host of mental illnesses and challenges. These measures are unlawful according to the Western tradition of government under the law, as they have profoundly affected the enjoyment of fundamental freedoms, including freedom of choice, speech, association, movement, expression, and privacy. The right to disobey unlawful measures that affect the enjoyment of these fundamental freedoms constitutes an old Western legal political tradition. In the 17th century, the celebrated Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford commented in Lex Rex that the political power, whenever it is used to oppress, is not lawful, but a licentious deviation of a lawful power. The American fathers had this in mind when they appealed to a long train of abuses in order to justify their successful revolutionary actions. Drawing from John Locke's political writings, the Declaration of Independence starts by manifesting that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new form of government. This particular statement is taken from Locke's second treatise on civil government, the following passage in particular, and I quote, Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people... Namely, the basic rights to life, liberty, and property, or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves in a state of war with the people, who are thereupon absolved from any further obedience, and they are left to the common refuge which God has provided for all men against force and violence. One of the Australia's leading constitutional law scholars, Gabriel Moyes, explains that civil disobedience may be justified whenever the normal channels of change do not function properly anymore or whenever serious grievances are simply not heard. As he points out, the system does not function adequately anymore and some groups have entrenched power positions in society and used their power to impose their will on weaker or vulnerable classes of people. Although the right to disobey and just laws should preferably be non-violent, Professor Moyes also reminds us that laws which violate our basic rights and freedoms are themselves more subtle forms of violence. It goes without saying that any recourse to civil disobedience should be balanced against the principle of regular obedience to validly enacted laws. As a strong medicine to render the ruling classes more responsive to reasonable popular grievances, reliance on civil disobedience requires a long sequence of abuses, and it should be followed by popular mobilization coupled with widespread community support. 
Above all, a political system is said to no longer work properly whenever the normal channels of societal change have ceased to operate satisfactorily. This leads to a situation where gross human rights violations are inflicted on the population by an oppressive ruling class that has become no more than an entrenched parasitical oligarchy. In this case, civil disobedience becomes a perfectly valid and effective way to alter the oppressive status quo. This view of a lawful right to resist unjust, oppressive commands of the state was particularly relevant during the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s. Leading the fight against segregation was the legendary Baptist minister, Dr. Martin Luther King. When King made the decision to peacefully march on Good Friday in 1963, a federal magistrate issued a right on behalf of the Birmingham city authorities prohibiting it. Dr. King refused to comply with the right and he was arrested as a result. Because he had asked citizens to respect judicial decisions that outlawed racial segregation, at first glance he wrote in his solitary confinement and on the stripes of a toilet paper, it may seem quite paradoxical for me to consciously break the laws. One could ask how he could advocate breaking some laws and obeying others, to which Dr. King replied. The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law, law is no law at all. Now, what's the difference between the two? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of Thomas Aquinas, he concluded, an unjust law is a human law that's not rooted in the eternal and natural law. In his struggle against segregation, Dr. King made an important distinction between the formally legal and objectively moral. This allowed him to conclude that an unjust law can be on the book, so to speak, but since it violates the basic rights of a segment of the population, this law ought to be disobeyed because it does not square with the law of God. So for reason, it, this reason it is unjust, and any law that degrades the human personality is an unjust law. Indeed, an important element of Dr. King's strategy to further the civil rights movement was to challenge unjust laws by measuring these laws in accordance with traditional principles of legality. In this line of reasoning, to disobey an unjust law is to actually demonstrate an utmost respect for the rule of law. Dr. King explained, the individual who disobeys the law whose conscience tells him it is unjust and who is willing to accept the penalty by staying in jail until that law is altered is actually expressing at the moment the very highest respect for the law. To conclude, under our constitutional tradition, the political ruler is elected by the people to represent them. Since we have elected our political representatives, then we, the people, have not only the right, but the duty to oversee the political class in accordance with the Australian Constitution. Should the political class violate some of the basic leading elements to the realization of the rule of law, for example, by attempting to remove fundamental legal rights and freedoms of the citizen, 
then it's not just that we have a lawful right to resist, it's also a moral responsibility to do so, not out of self-love, but out of love for your neighbor. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but the kind which makes us stand up everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynic, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.